0: Storgy, the online magazine for lovers of fiction. Check out our dystopian and horror anthologies along with specialized merchandise. All these and more are available on our website, storgy.com. Okay, well, uh, welcome to uh, the new series of Karma Press's uh, podcast. Um, this new series will be looking at uh, uh, the future and dystopias and uh, writing about the future from different points of view and who owns the future and who um, defines what the future uh, could be in literary terms. Today uh, is looking at, in particular, Arab futurism and Arab, Arab science fiction. Uh, we're delighted to have uh, four guests with us today. Uh, Rawan Yagi who is a, a, a Gazan uh, writer. Um, she is a contributor to Palestine Plus 100 Commas, new uh, science fiction anthology from Palestine and Palestinian writers. Uh, Rawan um, studied at the Islamic University of Gaza and also had a junior member scholarship at the Jesus College, Oxford University. Um, she contributed to the 2014 uh, anthology, Gaza Writes Back, uh, as well as a book, and she's also uh, a, a journalist and has written for New York Times and Mondo Rice and uh, many other uh, outlets. We're uh, also joined by uh, Basma Gallini, who is the editor of um, uh, Palestine Plus 100. Uh, she is herself uh, from Gaza and is a literary translator. Uh, we're also joined by Lindsay Moore, who's a reader in postcolonial literature at Lancaster University uh, and the author of two books on Arab literature, most recently narrating postcolonial Arab nations, Egypt, Algeria, Lebanon, Palestine. And finally, we're very lucky to be joined by uh, Barbara Dick, who studied classics at the University College, Oxford, and uh, has a doctorate from Durham University a modern Arab science fiction, uh, science, society, religion uh, in selected texts. Um, I thought I'd start by uh, asking uh, you, Barbara. Uh, you've you've studied science fiction in Arab literature, and you've looked at uh, some of the reasons why uh, perhaps there hasn't been kind of a tradition in science fiction in the way that there is in the West uh, um, until until quite recently. Um, and I thought I'd ask, you know, uh, there is a perception at the moment that science fiction has perhaps uh, in the West has almost exhausted itself. It's gone through so many. Uh, iterations of kind of reflecting so, uh, society or societal moments in the West, it's uh, it's almost come to a come to a kind of um, a, a kind of natural pause or a lull, and suddenly in its in its place you have this uh, an explosion of interest in in science fiction from the East from Africa, uh, Afrofuturism is kind of going mainstream, um, and there's this this moment in uh, Arab science fiction. Do you uh, agree with that kind of? Uh, uh, perhaps a slight simplification of what's been going on. Do you think that we're in a moment right now where science fiction is kind of breaking out culturally?
1: Um, yes, I do. I do think that is fair. Um, I think that science fiction is often figured as the literature of change and a way, a literary way of coping with modernity. So I think it's perhaps not surprising that. Um, the Arab world is just beginning to use that literature to consider, um, especially in the, I think, the wake of the explosion of social media in the last 15 to 20 years, and the fact that the world has become much more international in the literary sense, that people are beginning to adopt this literature to, especially in a perhaps a dystopian way in the light of the Arab Spring, um, to explore sort of political dystopian realities in the sort of 1984 type sense of science fiction. Um, But also in the wake of that, um, you also drag with you the um, more popular traditional elements of science fiction, for example, interest in space travel and aliens and the sort of quite schlocky, sort of pulp science fiction elements um, that are popular with children, in particular the work of Nabil Farouk. Um, And it's a way of engaging children in science in a a fun way, which is something that um, Ahmed Hamas's first essay deals with. Um, He's basically the sort of the fount of origin of modern interest in um, Arabic science fiction as an academic discipline so really uh, the academic interest in modern Arabic science fiction I think pretty much dates to his 2006 essay. I can't find a lot of writing um, in English before that. There is quite a bit in Arabic in scattered journals here and there but not a lot and really he's the first person. He's a German Iraqi engineer who's actually. Uh, written quite a cogent essay drawing together um, all the various threads of what he thinks uh, are the reasons why um, Arabic science fiction hasn't really flourished and why it is just beginning to as of 2006. And I do think it comes back to that encounter with modernity. Um, Many studies of Arabic literature go through that period from 1798 when Napoleon invaded Egypt, and this is kind of the advent of European modernity to Egypt. Um, and then obviously the European fascination with the Orient as well to a large extent Um, so that is the point of origin when The interest in foreign literature and then the the schools begin to take off um, in the early 19th century. Um, And this is something that's explored in Elizabeth Kendall's book on sort of the approach to Arabic modernity and the many journals that were designed to foster that modernity and the language schools, the translation schools. Um, And Sabri Hafez in his book on the origins of Arabic literature Um, touches upon this the very first translations were apparently dreadful people weren't rigorous at all they used to just um, read the book wander off for a few weeks and then just write down what they thought it said Um, but these were popular whenever uh, for example Jules Verne um, was first translated people enjoyed reading it Um, there have also been studies of other literatures for example Robert Matthews study of in 1989 of Japanese science fiction when he says that Uh, Jules Verne's novels were translated deliberately and promoted deliberately in Japanese society because they felt that after the Meiji period and after isolation they needed to um, really push a scientific agenda and this is something that comes forward in Ahmed Hamas essay as well that um, Some journalists feel that there's a specifically didactic element to the promotion of SF in the Arab world and that people need to become more engaged with it. So writing, engaging, fun science fiction for young adults and children, Um, not so much the more sophisticated, very adult literature that we're speaking about today with the Palestine 100 collection, which is a very adult sort of look at the dystopias associated with um, that are coming out of the post 2011 Arab Spring um, events but the early, the early um, engagement I think is uh, the early agendas are alleged to be more um, uh, focused on promoting science and scientific thinking among younger people and there is an element of this in this of um, seeing to be catching up with Western science and Western scientific developments. In the novels of Nabil Farouk, which are little novellas written for children and young teenagers, there's a really strong wish for Egypt to be scientifically preeminent. And he's got four sort of superhero scientists who work together um, to uh, you know, foil dastardly plots by other nations and sort of show how great Egypt is. And when aliens land in Egypt, they think it's the best country in the world, et cetera. They're so impressed. So there is a longing for people to be more scientifically developed, but then there are genuine Obviously, social, economic, political reasons why these countries weren't as developed. And of course, um, in the work of Jamal khalili and many, many other people who've written in Arabic science, there's loads of evidence that there were people develop, countries developed scientifically at different times due to entirely different factors. And um, we don't have to go back to a sort of um, uh, horrible sort of Henry Kissinger type view where you know they've missed out on the enlightenment they haven't they just had enla- different kinds of enlightenment at different times so I think um, the literary response firstly the actual writing of science fiction in the Arab world whether for children and young adults or the more adult works that they we're speaking of today um, are in response to different levels of encounter with modernity some are in response to pulp science fiction and their kind of replications of that for fun and for engagement with science and others are much more sophisticated engagements with the post-2011 world with dystopias, with surveillance states um, with intractable political problems so those are the real world Arab literary responses but with regard to, going back to your original question with regard to The modern interest in it, I do think it does stem largely from Ahmed Hamas's essay. And then people who have um, tangential interest in it, people, for example, like China Mieville, will probably go to those and take it as a starting point, as indeed I did. And you can carve out a basic bibliography from that essay really well. And then if you're lucky enough, as I was, um, to meet um, Ahmed Khaled Tawfiq before he he sadly died, um, there was a person incredibly busy, um, both as a professor of tropical medicine and as a writer of children's books and medical horror, who still had the time to meet someone like me, just a a researcher and present me with stuff he'd photocopied, you know, works by um, famous Egyptian writers that I would never have heard of um, on writing on, on Arabic science fiction. Um, so it's it's kind of been there, but it's been overlooked until now. And I think you just need one spark, really, to get the fire going. And that was the original essay. And since then, you have had people, um, you know, do more doctoral theses on it, whether in translation or in Arabic. Um, and you just gradually it's a sort of rolling stone approach gradually you do get more and more people um, engaged with the subject and then you get good texts and bad texts you get stuff that is well written stuff that's immensely fun but has not much literary merit and then you have um, literature that maybe has slightly more literary merit and is also really engaging and sophisticated as well and that's maybe when you begin to get some traction and some biting point and critical interest where people don't just dismiss it as you know writing for children or something that's quite je je so I think we are coming into a a time now where people there is more Arabic science fiction and fantastical and dystopian literature all of which kind of edge into each other a little bit you can't keep them in separate boxes Mm -hmm. Um, but there is also that growing critical interest which comes in response to that um, from all kinds of different countries not just from England and the US but from Italy as well and I'm sure from other places I haven't heard of so yeah I do think this is a in the last sort of 10 years right up until now there is a more of a flowering of interest in Arabic science fiction which I hope we'll see more translations and um, also in the um, critical approach to that as well
0: Thank you and, Lindsay, you've just come back from a, uh, a conference called um, Science Fiction Beyond the West, mm-hmm. and you were the keynote speaker at that conference. Do you feel that uh, this, this sort of interest is, is kind of maps out into an interest in other science fictions from, from everywhere around the world, uh, beyond the West, um, however we define that, or do you think it's a specifically kind of a Middle Eastern, Arabic kind of phenomenon at the moment?
2: No, for sure. Um, at the symposium, which was um, at SOAS uh, about 10 days ago, organised by Taslim Kutait and um, July Blalock, there was a wide range of, of fo- foci over the course of the day. I mean, um, Afrofuturisms, of course, uh, there were several papers on um, Arab speculative fiction um, and film, uh, but people were talking about kind of agrofuturisms, um, lots of stuff about the environment. It was, it was presented as much more of a kind of global... Um, Turn towards speculative genres with, with different tendencies according to, to context. Some of us, and I mean, I would certainly include myself here, are kind of coming to this material f- um, from a prior focus, not particularly on genre fiction. So I think quite a few of us have been attracted to this material through a slightly problematic kind of post Arab Spring lens. Um, and this was my, my kind of entree into this uh, material with Basma Abdelaziz as the cue. For example, some of us have been looking at material that kind of focuses on the, these dystopian texts, which have an emphasis on uh, kind of dysphoria, um, these tenacious and opaque regimes. Um, this kind of um, imagining the near future as a version of the present. So Bazma Abdelaziz, for example, described contemporary Egypt as a badly written dystopia. So there's this kind of scenario where lots of writers are almost trying to write better, you know, better written dystopias to represent the present. Um, so we had a lot of discussion at the symposium a couple of weeks ago about the relationship between the different time timeframes um, in these texts and how the future is often kind of projected out there, but it's really a mirror on the present. And we, we did raise the question, you know, if the future in these texts is really about the present, then is there a viable future here even being imagined? Or is it really just a case of commenting on this non-viable future, um, present in different contexts? Um, We should note as well, though, that this kind of post-Arab Spring focus is an an English language phenomenon, um, perhaps less so in French, I think as well, that we are getting a certain kind of proportion of material translated into or written in English. And as Barbara's just made very, very clear to us, there are other trends and other strands here. Um, I mean, I've just been reading a very recent book that's come out by Ian Campbell called Arabic Science Fiction, which... um, corroborates, I think, a lot of what Barbara said. Um, but some of the things that Ian Campbell has specified um, in terms of Arabic science fiction are not necessarily coming through in material that we're reading in the West. Um, he defines, um, well first of all he says that Arabic science fiction is a maturing genre now that has been consciously produced since about the mid-60s and its kind of most recent incarnation, is getting growing interest by Arabic scholars that yes, there's been this interest in space science, particularly in places like Egypt and Lebanon, um, but broadly there's been this desire to reflect different Arab societies in a distorting mirror. So it's the same kind of tendency as we see in Western speculative fiction as well. That's the kind of Darko-Suvan um, model cognitive estrangement. Campbell adds that what we see in Arabic science fiction is often a double estrangement, where there's a kind of acknowledgement of the past scientific and technological glory of Islamic civilizations, and at the same time, the sort of subsequent decline of the Arabo-Islamic world and its colonization and ongoing threat by Western technology. So there's this real ambivalence about technology going on here. He also points out, as many critics do, that um, speculative genres can provide a way of of, um, concealing critique of Arab governments, but also of sort of rooting itself in authenticity. So using the fantastical, the spiritual, the magical, um, and other speculative elements can actually be a way of being more genuinely Arabic and Islamic, um, oddly, which is perhaps something we, we might not expect. So in some senses, I mean, I see some consonance between these trends and an earlier kind of outburst of magical realism. Um, A few decades ago, there are some shared tendencies, I think.
0: I'm going to go slightly off script now, and I'm going to turn to you, uh, Rowan, um, because... What Lindsay was saying there about um, this idea of uh, the queue representing Egypt as a, as a badly written dystopia, mm. um, you wrote a piece um, for Rice, uh during the, the March of Return last year which was titled Dystopia, a live feed. It was about the fact that um, you're, as a Palestinian, as a Gazan, you're kind of living in these dystopia. Do you feel that as a writer, um, science fiction you know the kind of science fiction you get in the west with you know people flying around in space with laser beams etc cetera, etc cetera, is a bit of a luxury for a, a writer like yourself who has a responsibility to represent what's going on especially when what's going on is kind of worse than anything people can imagine in these these sort of uh, fanciful uh, sf dystopias.
3: um yeah it it does sound like a luxury to think about spaceships and uh, being in space, etc., um, but uh, but I don't I don't think there that we should limit our our, our imagination when we talk about literature or fiction. Um, I don't know if you've seen um, um, a music video by Forty Seven Soul um, where they imagine a world where Palestinians are actually moved to a different planet. And even there, they're being um, monitored and uh, they're being followed by, by drones, etc. So I think um, I think that um, imagining alternative worlds and uh, um, portraying our real context, which is dystopian and is uh, the worst that you can imagine in a in a in a dystopian context. Uh, is is also helpful um not just as a way to portray that reality but also as a way for the writer themselves to to escape um the kind of reality they're they 're living um so it was it was a bit hard for me to try to to try to go into that uh kind of extraterrestrial um world yeah uh because I was living in a in a situation where um control is 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 um basically the main um element of life mm-hmm. um, and um where that kind of feeds into the psychology of people living there and the psychology of me as a writer um so um it kind of feels like. I am also being um, controlled or, or um, kind of strangled by by the situation that I was living in.
0: It's it's very strange because um, when I was I was in uh, West Bank just in September last year, and um, it's the first time you've you've read and you've seen pictures, I've seen uh, you know documentaries, etc., about the kind of what it's like to live under an occupation. But when you've when you actually see the guards everywhere, and when you're, you're terrified of every every move you make. The only kind of reference point I've got is either, you know, historical fiction or historical films about, you know, totalitarian, you know, Nazi Germany or something like that, or which is which seems, you know, too too old-fashioned and too remote to be relevant, or um, dystopic um, science fiction. There's there's no kind of language because uh, in Britain we've never been occupied, in America we've never been occupied, and that's a it's a very big jump for British or American or Western. Uh, readers to to make um, to to really grapple with that, and the only grammar, the only vocabulary we have, is science fiction, which is which is is kind of crazy because um, as a as a Palestinian writer, you shouldn't have to write in science fiction to be understood in terms of you know those term, in terms of what being occupied means. Um, but this this project, to a certain extent, um, kind of has has done that. Um, I thought I'd ask you I suppose, just to talk a little bit about the idea behind this anthology um, um, why you put it together in the way that you did um, and also um, yeah my, f- my first question is if this is going to be the first ever book of Palestinian science fiction why ruin a first ever SF book by throwing in politics and the Nakba and history and all that
4: um, you, don't, you don't throw in politics in Nakba, when you're writing about Palestine, it's, um, it's just a part of who Palestinians are. It's not something they consciously write about. Uh, it's intertwined in our day-to-day lives. It's had a knock-on effect since 1948. Whether we notice it or not, it's part of our lives. It's, it's not something you can avoid when you're writing about. Um, wh- whereas here, or in other Western countries, you've got the luxury of choosing whether to be political or not. In Palestine, you you can't you can't explain to a five-year-old why he has to do his homework under candlelight. You can't explain to them why there is no electricity. They they live it. They notice it as they grow up. They realize the reasons behind it. So whether they want to or not, they're aware of bigger bigger circumstances at hand. So when they do write about their day-to-day lives or their experiences as grown-ups, they will write about things that are otherwise known as politics. I wouldn't call it politics, really. I mean, politics is what shapes governments. Um, or actually, let me take that back. Politics is what, is what shapes our day-to-day lives. Uh, we just don't realize that we, we, we choose to be involved in it or not. In Palestinians, politics runs in their blood. They can't help it because it just is a big part of their day-to-day lives. It has direct repercussions on what they do every day.
0: And how did you uh, feel the authors reacted to this very, very specific um, brief? It's a very tight, specific, detailed brief. You've got to write a story which is set 100 years after the Nakba, to reflect it in some way. How did the the authors respond uh, generally to that kind of invitation?
4: The initial response was, um, I've never written science fiction, but I'm going to give it a try. And I think they... Some of them had said they'll give it a try. They'd already decided that they won't know what to write about, but once they started writing, they, it just flowed. I mean, the evidence is in the stories. Initially, they thought they wouldn't be able to do it. Let's just, But let's, let's play around with the idea, see what happens, and the results are clear. Um, yeah, that, the, that, that was the initial reaction. I've never done science fiction, but I'm going to give it a try. And
0: um, Question for, for Rowan, or for both of you, actually. Is there a, a readership out there at the moment in Science fiction. Is there a sense of uh, science fiction becoming more popular amongst you know uh, the writers you you move among? Do you see do um, you see this this kind of growing uh, awareness of of science fiction that Lindsay and Bob have been talking about in Palestine? Always is, is the literary scene in Palestine kind of very different to like Egypt? Or?
3: To be honest, I, I actually haven't. I haven't read any um, science fiction. By Palestinians in Palestine um, i've I've seen a lot of uh, science fiction being used in films um, and yeah like I mentioned music videos and yeah it's more uh, a visual b- being used in visual art rather than in in uh, fiction and writing mm-hmm. um, science fiction as as a as a western genre is very popular um, people pe- people love orwell and um margaret atwood um all of all of these uh, really mainstream mm-hmm. uh dystopic uh authors um but as a as a as a production uh, i haven't really seen it uh, except actually in uh, ibrahim Nasrallah's um um
2: Second War of the Dog. Yes, yeah. uh, and Dog War II. yes,
3: yeah, um, and another book that is not very popular. The uh, I think I mentioned it to you before. the The literal translation is uh, the Guardian of the City, mm-hmm. uh, where there's this kind of lost um, character um, who finds himself in in a, in a city that doesn't make sense at all. And um, yeah, basically. Uh, I think that's the only thing that I've that I've seen. Um, and again, uh, Ibrahim Nasrallah is one of the very, very popular authors, a uh, Palestinian, uh, Jordanian authors, uh, read across the Middle East. Um, we should
2: a nod i think to emil habibi as well as well yes, yes. Mm, i of mean course, as an yeah. <laughs> early precursor <laughs> here the secret life of saeed the pes optimist and i'm not going to try and pronounce the very long title <laughs> in arabic Do you know what it is? Well,
3: well.
2: <laughs> the secret life of saeed the Al optimist <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah
3: okay thank you <laughs> 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 when was that
2: 1974 in arabic i mean he starts and ends in outer space because it's the only viable position for him mm-hmm. because existence as an arab in israel is completely impossible and and kind of he's paralyzed by contradictions So situational paralysis so he ends up sitting on a stake and then he's rescued by aliens and he gets taken to outer space so it's kind of like exit from the known world is the only way of saving this comic Mm. hero and it is a kind of very tonally interesting um novel i think And space is sort of seen as a kind of non-viable position, I think, that replicates his real world situation. So, you know, it's not a book that's particularly well known, um, although Anna Bernard talks about it, I think, in her um, book on Palestinian fiction, but it's worth going back to as an early, you know, how space might feature in this work. Larissa Sansour as well in film obviously Mm -hmm. uses space and also speculative genres a lot, yeah. Yeah. But no, I agree. There's also, to some um, Azim's book, uh, the Book of Disappearance, which has just been translated and has come out by, um was translated by Sinan Antoon. So we're all looking forward to this. And this is about, you know, imagine you wake up one day in Israel and all the Arabs, all the Palestinians have disappeared. So it's a kind of version of some of the stories that we mm. have in this connection.
4: Mm.
0: It's interesting what you were saying, uh, Lindsay and, and Barbara, to a certain extent, about the, the kind of function of uh, dystopia. Um, and obviously... This book is kind of uh, in, in includes a lot of dystopias, and the whole the wider project, the Iraq plus one hundred, likewise. Mm-hmm. And there is this growing use of dystopia to talk about the present in in writers uh, like Aziz and the Q. But is there is there something missing in in that tradition of science fiction um, in that it hasn't used science fiction to kind of position the country as the, as the representatives of Earth as kind of like a global power? You talk about you talk about the um, the children's writer who who, uh, who wrote stories about aliens coming to Egypt mm. and kind of Egypt showing off its its, its scientific prowess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously very very important to the American imagination to have aliens constantly coming to threaten Earth, but primarily threaten New york or america specifically because it it's a it's a it's an self aggrandizing kind of device is there a need for that to be to be kind of deployed for for the educational you know and the, the sort of kind of nation building purposes that you talked about um you know uh, by by arab countries you know can you imagine uh, perhaps Saudi Arabia, which is asserting itself on the kind of global stage, suddenly kind of producing stories which have um aliens come down and talk to uh, talk to the you know the, the saudi um
2: Emirs and a, I mean golf futurism yeah. is a thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean that's sort of you know we are kind of wealthy and powerful and we're going to build the highest buildings that kind of thing. In the Palestinian context, I would imagine this would be rendered hugely ironically. Yeah, I mean I'm thinking yeah. about Larissa Sansour's *A Space Exodus*, for example. I mean the first Palestinian on the moon in this short film, but the, Palis- the the astronaut, which is Larissa, floats off into space, kind of calling for Jerusalem, and it's it's comic in the yeah. darkest of ways. This is sort of it's a, it's a representation of Palestinian powerlessness really
0: but if you haven't got the kind of the optimistic the kind of empire building or the nation building kind of confidence mm. um that american science fiction has even if it's if it's a you know dumb and you know hollywood-esque and all the rest of it if you haven't got that then how can you expect the science fiction as a genre to be subtly you know be, be popular across the board um uh,
2: might be a case of looking at that slightly differently. I mean, I was thinking as Rowan was speaking there that although contemporary Palestine is just fertile, fertile ground for speculative imaginaries in many of the ways that Basma points up in her introduction to Palestine plus one, you know, the context is already dystopic as perhaps definitively dystopic kind of pending return. There are these discrepant modernities in a very, very small geographical space where, you know, Israelis and Palestinians are kind of looking at each other or failing to look at each other and seeing each other as each other's dystopian other. I think you have these multiple Palestinian realities in a very small space and across the region and the globe. Surveillance, enclosure, um, environmental devastation, resource exploitation all those kind of hallmarks of dystopia are already there. Chronic trauma. Um, But at the same time, despite all of these kind of intensely difficult circumstances there are always innovative ways being found to cross time and space I mean we just think about things like Palestinian prisoners smuggling sperm out of of prisons and you know babies are born or prison memoirs come out on kind of tiny scraps of paper this kind of thing I mean there are ways and creativity is kind of in some ways it feels like creativity is the only thing left and so writers are certainly exploiting that Again, I think it's a kind of wager on the future in mm. a speculative sense. It mm. doesn't necessarily have to use aliens or, you know, the moon.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just worry that it's, it's, uh, a lot of what we're talking about is um, it's post uh, Arab Spring, it's post uh, the Iraq War, it's built on trauma. Mm. Um, things like Ahmed uh, al Sadawi's Frankenstein in Baghdad is it's kind of trauma upwards. Uh, it's not this kind of uh, technology will help us, technology will save us uh, approach that maybe the science fiction of the 50s, you know, US science fiction was. But the um, the
1: book is a technology. True. Mm. Hmm. I think also um, Arabic science fiction does engage with the debate of science being both good and bad. There's an author called Mustafa Mahmoud, who was um, Egyptian, who wrote, frankly, quite fantastical things that are more like to do with medieval alchemy than, than science. He was very, very interested in Eastern philosophy and Buddhism, but also towards the end of his life, a devout Muslim. And these things come across really strongly in the books that he writes. And I think in one of his non-fiction books, he writes that science is like an, a knife. You can use it to stab your friend or you can use it to cut a bit of an apple to share with him. And I think that they, they do engage with, with, with that. And I think the texts, like any texts um, all over the world, engage with the good parts of science, you know, the great medical advances um, and also the potentially bad side, like should you freeze yourself and have an extra life? Um, why not be immortal? And in that sense, I sometimes find that science fiction just draws back and becomes more conservative and says... Let's leave things as they are. Let's stick to a normal lifespan of 70. Don't be so selfish and demand yeah. to live to 100, all decrepit and horrible. Um, and this is something that I think uh, Nihad Sharif engages with in one of his sort of early works in the 70s. So there is that sort of conservatism that, you know, science is great for maybe ensuring that we have a better life while we're alive, but, you know, should we be using it to extend the lifespans of the wealthy and then other. Other writers draw that out into, of course, the technology will be just used to benefit the wealthy. And this is something that comes across in Tawfiq's Utopia, where you have basically the middle class is hollowed out. He specifically says this is a bad thing. by through the book, where you have a very, very wealthy upper class that can buy anything, including human hunts and then a desperately poor, scrambling lower class. So there is the sense of, yes, progress can be used to benefit only the rich. So progress, scientific progress is a political um, is a political issue. Who's the science going to benefit? Um, Is it for everyone, like giving everybody clean, cheap, safe energy, for example, or is it only for the few? And going back to Rad's original point, I think it was Thomas Dish, I can't remember, I'm not sure if it was Thomas Dish who said that science fiction was the propaganda arm of NASA, but science fiction was used or co-opted by um, uh, by Americans to encourage people to think more patriotically about America and be proud of the efforts um, of its scientists. And then um, this is something I think that Ahmed Hamas points out again, his 2006 essay, uh, an Egyptian journalist called Sifat Salameh pointed out that we should use um science fiction for children to um stimulate their interest in in science of course that will eventually run into the sand at one stage for example not everybody's good at maths which is something you need to be good at to be good at science mostly Um, so that really depends that's a separate issue you can get people interested but only out of the body of people that you've engaged in an imaginative sense and very often through western film let's be honest rather than indigenously published literature um not many of them will go on to become, you know, uh, Nobel Prize-winning scientists. Uh, that depends upon the R and D spend of the particular country, and it depends how you spend your money as well. Um, again, you'd have to look at a, somebody who is looking more at political economy in the Middle East to have a look at the R and D figures. Um, but you get somewhere like Saudi Arabia, which is obviously incredibly wealthy. Though obviously that's, that that has changed um, with the economic situation in the past few years. You know, how much are they going to spend on potentially getting to the moon or building a rocket or building the new science cities um, uh, that they are doing um, or the King Abdullah Center for Technology? Um, so it really depends upon if you're looking at science fiction as deliberately didactically fostering an interest in science. Obviously, that would be a good thing, provided that the relevant government doesn't take hold of it and twist it to a particular end. And, of course, in certain countries, writers have to be careful about what they say, otherwise they might find they might have to go and live in another country.
0: Um, you, have, you have a kind of a, a, a strange um, uh, disparate kind of disconnect between the, the countries in the, uh, the Arab world that have the money for this kind of development mm. and the countries that have the kind of uh, freedoms of speech for, for the writers that you need. Uh, to 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 write you know good science fiction to a certain extent you know yeah. those, those being Egypt and Beirut and you know the, the yeah. traditional sort of centres of publishing and writing,
1: that's right. Um, yeah, I think there are, I think there is one Saudi writer who's had to go and live in Canada because I'm sorry I can't remember the the work that he's done, but um, I think that. Uh, it's uh, that would be an environment where you would have to be a little bit more careful about how you put things at the moment, unless, of course, you are already living abroad. Um, So, yeah, you'd have to be aware of the consequences for you and your family if you said something that was a very obvious allegory, um, you know, critical of the regime. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of what you said, yes, um, you do need those freedoms to be able to not only write but get published and be accepted in those countries. So perhaps the move towards certain greater social freedoms um, in certain areas might allow people to speak a little bit more freely. And then it isn't always about uh, social freedoms. It's also about um, just talking more about the scientific advances that you want to make and saying that these aren't anything that ever belonged to the West and um, I think it might be Jim Al-Khalili or, or another writer on, on science. He said science is never doesn't belong to anybody. There's no such thing as Islamic science, for example. Um, there's just science, mm. no matter who does it. Mm. Um, and that really does depend mostly upon who is spending money on, on doing science. There's a prestige element to it. It's something to boast about if you have a country that produces a lot of groundbreaking R&D or a lot of Nobel Prize winning scientists, because scientific progress is generally considered to be good, although there are downsides to how certain developments are used um, socially and politically, for example, surveillance technology. But overall, if people want that kind of prestige that Nabil Farouk, the children's author, sort of so clearly longs for, then governments have to look at not buying in technology and developing their own, and that involves, you know, long-term investment in blue sky... Um, research, rather than just sort of a, a, a dogged um, devotion to a- applied development of research or borrowing someone else's. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think this is something that does come out in the literature. I think the recent criticisms and the recent sorry literary criticism and the recent outpouring in the. Palestine 100 collection and others, is more definitely towards the social and dystopian rather than this to this element of slightly nationalistic, sort of patriotic pride in scientific development. And I think probably that's because science is so international now as well. Mm-hmm. Scientists are constantly moving between different labs. Somebody who's good goes somewhere else. Um, so it's even less seen as a sort of a, a something national to boast about anymore.
0: Yeah. Um, I thought Rowan we could hear from you and get you to read a short passage from your story, and then I'll talk to you about it.
3: Okay. Um. <laughs> um commonplace. It was a nightmare, or so he would have assumed if it weren't for the shaking of his bed and the quivering of the window above him. His left leg rose and paused for a moment, midair, waiting for the next explosion. Hesitating to jump out of bed before the next rattling quake, he waited to see whether When it struck, it would sound further away. Fuck. He got up, still thinking about the intensity of the last explosion and trying to calculate its distance compared to the one before that. He was never right about this. Often the explosions seemed closer than they were. On his way to the bathroom, his heart sank at the sight of the battered backpack in the hallway. Today was the day, Adam's eyes were half-open as urine trickled down the shining porcelain in the pale dawn light. He had been lucky with this place, he thought, finding an apartment block with enough empty space beside it to let sunshine and and moonlight in through its eastern windows. There it was again, his head spinning as if the ground beneath his feet were the deck of a boat listing back and forth with the waves. He squeezed his eyes shut. Outside, the light was still merciful as 700 hours drew near. His steps carried him soberly across the neighborhood. A small district in which buildings jostled together without order till their outline against the sky resembled a jagged line of rubble. Rooftops rose and fell unpredictably each segment marked by a different color or style of window. Adam headed to his usual post on the usual corner and upon reaching it retrieved from his backpack a crate of what they euphemistically called grapes, which he'd bought from a smuggler on the southern border. His rates were reasonably uh, reasonable by most standards. $50 a pack was a good price for an item so dearly cherished in this part of the city. Sitting on the outskirts of this uh, precipice of a town, the neighborhood was continually on edge, bracing itself for another swarming attack from over the wall. Last time this happened was when a group of young men, unknown to everyone else in the city, were caught digging a tunnel from a deserted house on the edge of the of the buffer buffer zone, out towards the wall and the green land beyond. This. Cr- this green swathe of pasture was visible to anyone who dared look uh, look out their eastern or northern windows and whether they looked or not its existence occupied everyone's minds when the swarm came it was methodical it went straight to the house in question circling it and darkening the sky around it some kids tried shooting at the machines with slingshots but those were the ones who, come the next day, had disappeared along with a few other children whose mothers swore had been at home at the time. The drones placed an an explosive device on the roof of the house, hovered upwards to about four meters above, and paused with their robot arms dangling like wet, dead spider legs. A moment of pressure and then the roof of the house was transformed into a million tiny fragments that fell to the ground in unison. A hail of bullets, and it was all over. We weren't even sure the walls were going to keep standing because of how many bullets were fired into the, into the interior. Everyone remembers the blood seeping out of the half, half-collapsed front door and onto the pavement in the street out front, the slowly forming puddle. The edge of which crept towards the onlook- onlookers, inching backwards.
0: Cool. Thank you very much. So, um, the first thing that strikes me about that Rowan, is, um, until we get to the drones, it could, uh, and maybe the the uh, the grapes, uh, whatever they are, and uh, the reader will have to carry on reading, um, until we get to them. We. It could be set right now. It could be a story set set today or 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 last year or 2014. Um, is that was that a very conscious decision by you to to kind of start exactly where you are and 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 to show um, that we're already in that kind of space?
3: Hmm. I mean, um, when you told me, when both of you told me about the um, the idea of the book. Um, and to the premise of of the stories. I said to myself, well, I can't imagine it getting more dystopic than it already is. Um, And I think it was a really conscious decision to make it as realistic as possible. Um, You were talking before about relating audiences to what is actually happening in Palestine. it's actually it is it is fiction it's writing but but also i i don't feel like i'm going into something that is so um different to to what i'm living um at the moment and um i think that's the the shocking element about about these stories it's that this is actually happening it's not science fiction it's not going into an alternative world and imagining different species uh, or uh, aliens coming to 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 take over Earth. It's actually humans doing this to each other. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a, a conscious decision to to start from where where I was and where I was was Gaza, which which is um, it does seem or if it does feel like a science fiction. Uh, Movie, like, yeah.
0: And uh, your story talks about uh, a character who, uh, on a very specific day, um, his his ordinary life involves selling uh, these these grapes, which are a, a kind of futuristic uh, sedative or, or drug or soma. Um, uh, but on this particular day, after his his shift selling them, he uh, he's decided to enact a, a kind of a retribution for something that's happened to. Uh, uh, his his sister, and I wonder again. You're in terms of his character. You're looking at somebody who is not dissimilar, maybe to the the uh, the bravest or the most foolhardy of the marchers uh, at the the march return last year, who went all the way to the wall and who were prepared to be shot, as as hundreds of them were, um, because they've got nothing else to lose. And again, it seems that that's not just the, con- the conditions of the surveillance and the drones and the walls, but also the, the experience of, or the, the character of, of Adam is somebody taken straight out of 2018. Um, do, you wanna, do you wanna talk a little bit about how you sort of put that character together? Um, and there's also you know, his, his influences and his interests and the sister's kind of love of Sherlock Holmes and where that came, comes from.
3: Uh, yeah, I think Adam's character developed while I was writing um, writing the story, and I think more as well in the process of editing. Uh, I think I wanted Adam to be someone who is my age uh, and who is basically struggling with the trauma of losing somebody who is really close to 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 him, um, and also uh, having to to contribute maybe not contribute uh, out of choice but um he is contributing whether he likes it or not to the the general situation of control of keeping people um detached from their emotions uh detached from reality uh keeping people um, in a sort of state where they are afraid of reacting um to 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 the whole situation and in a way that's that's a lot of young people in Gaza um, where um, trauma is just ongoing Uh, there is no break from 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 being exposed to um, to the bombings like like he he's experiencing uh, there's no break from um feeling controlled uh there's no break from uh physical um uh inability to to move outside that space uh which keeps uh getting bombed which keeps getting uh intruded uh upon um invaded uh if not by actual uh, soldiers by Robot soldiers that are capable of doing more horrible things than um, than soldiers, the human soldiers, uh, which is very much like what's happening in Gaza. Uh, you don't see Israelis; they control people from uh, from uh, outside. There are drones. There are F 16s uh, fighter jets. Um, monitoring uh, uh, surveillance towers, um, and there's also social media, uh, phones, like everything is being monitored that everyone feels that sort of paranoia and which Adam feels as well. Uh, Young people, older people, uh, everyone is paranoid and feeling like they're always being watched. Um, so that was also part of building uh, Adam's character. Um, so he's a young man, paranoid, always feels like he's being watched, and struggling with um, a, a trauma, a really traumatic uh, personal uh, event, which happens as a part of a collective traumatic experience. Um, which is every single young person in Gaza as well. Um, but uh, uh, I, I added more the Sherlock Holmes uh, elements and um, kind of the grumpiness and the, the kind of uh, physical and uh, emotional control to Adam uh, to make him more unique and more relatable to to me, as a writer, because I like Sherlock Holmes, (laughs) and uh, to other uh, readers. Yeah, I think uh, I I brought in Sherlock Holmes because it's a a universal story Mm -hmm. that uh, young people and teenagers um, love everywhere around the world, and Palestine is not an exception. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to build uh, kind of uh, his character and how he grew up with his sister uh, and uh, Uh, build um, that kind of uh, um, sister-brother relationship uh, through the things that they shared, like um, Sherlock Holmes and the things that she loved to collect and uh, how she shared that with him, um, etc.
0: I was going to ask you also, because we were talking about how kind of close to reality this is, you also uh, are a journalist and you're about to embark on a Fulbright scholarship in New York studying journalism. And I wonder if you feel the, uh, the process of writing a piece of fiction, do you sit down with a completely different set of uh, rubric and instructions and ideas and processes to, to a piece of f- uh, fiction? Or is it exactly the same, it's just not true in the case of the fiction?
3: That's a good question. I never thought about that. Um, the The nonfiction pieces that I've so far written have have been very close to my personal experiences. Uh, so a lot of the time, I would sit down and write them as an, a sort of emotional response to how I I'm feeling, and uh, as a sort of way. Uh, to share what I feel is necessary to to be shared with uh, other people, um, and they're rarely like they're rarely uh, unique experiences to me as a Palestinian. They're experiences that a lot of people go through. I, um, I just try to give them a more personal point of view, but a more journalistic kind of uh, uh, way of writing would be completely different. I'd have to be completely detached from what I'm writing, uh, and I would have to be bringing in vo- voices other than my own. And I feel like that's very similar to fiction. I'm, I'm trying to build characters that I want to be, that are not me, basically. Uh, there are other people with their own stories and their own voices, and uh, I'm just putting them into into words. and. Making them available to to readers, um, I think the the mindset is is definitely different because I have to build things out of out of nothing. Even though I'm I am influenced by people I know and uh, experiences that I've have been through, um, but for example, with the case, in the case of um, Adam and Commonplace maybe the style of writing is not journalistic but um a lot of the inspiration is from where I was living and um um it's it's very realistic to me. Uh rather than fictional. So yeah I, I, um there is definitely a, a line between journalistic and fictional but
0: but it's interesting that you place yeah. this, this story, the process of fiction, closer to, to journalism when you're reporting about other people yeah. than it is to kind of non-fiction about, or memoir or autobiography yeah. Yeah. and writing about yourself. Um, thank you. Well, you said yesterday when I asked you, what's, what's the writing scene like in Gaza? And your first reaction was, Gaza doesn't have anything, <laughs> um, which is kind of a bit depressing.
3: It is, because I've just come from there and I'm, I'm just really frustrated by everything going on there.
0: It, so that you don't feel like there's a community of writers there, you don't feel like there's uh, um, a, a context for writers to talk about their work and share their work. and um, Because there isn't a publishing centre in Gaza, um, there isn't a publishing centre really in, in Palestine particularly. Mm. Novelists uh, and established figures kind of have their books published generally in, in Beirut or, or Cairo, some in Jordan. Um, do you think it's because of that that there's not a, a, a writing scene as or is it because of other kind of societal reasons?
3: I'm not entirely correct when I say there there's no writing scene. There are plenty of um incredible and talented writers in Gaza and there are a lot of um institutions that um try to encourage that there are there are creative writing uh, classes um and short story classes at uh, university level, for example, at the University of Gaza where students are encouraged and required to write their own fiction.
0: Um, And you were kind of discovered, if you like, by Rafat. Yes. Uh, Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about him?
3: Yes. um, One of my uh, mentors and uh, teachers in the past, uh, Rafat Larair, who is also the editor of Gaza Writes Back, uh, tries to encourage his students to write short fiction, uh, specifically um, after sort of exposing them to to a world r- literature, uh, stories written by um, Hemingway, Pirandello, um, uh, who else, um, Ghassan uh, um, um and yeah, basically um, allowing them to see that uh, they are capable of producing um, their own stories. And a lot of writers actually, a, a lot of young people uh, write fiction that is inspired by their own life stories, uh, which I found amazing so um, th- there there are these uh, projects and uh, outlets where young people especially are um, more and more exposed to uh, writing fiction, whether in arabic or or in english uh, there are also um, uh, fiction and writing um, contests, um, especially by Al-Qatan Centre, where um, young writers are are asked to submit collections of of fiction. I wouldn't, as a Palestinian who was there in in Gaza, I didn't feel like there was a community. uh, I didn't feel like uh, there was a dialogue between people um on the physical ground at least but there is a lot going on on social media
0: well what do you think is needed to kind of um to nurture this these good projects and these these kind of grassroots initiatives what else is needed is is it i don't know a library of physical building or is it uh, a program of kind of um creative writing across universities um um is it a you know, does Gaza need publishers? What, what, one or two things do you think would really change things in Gaza?
3: Gaza is—it's a really weird, w- weird place because on the pyramid of needs, culture is at the top, right? And uh, there are so many things in Gaza which are at the bottom that, that you don't find. So, in so many cases. There are brilliant, talented people who miss out on on so many things because their basic needs are are not fulfilled, and sometimes education they do, they don't reach uh, a, a place where they can pursue education. Uh, so I think there there should be more um, uh, more support for education opportunities, and. Uh, basically yeah uh, creating more spaces where young people can can uh, exist uh together uh and um uh pursue a dialogue that that talks about a world literary movements uh and relating the literary scene in in Palestine and Gaza to that
0: so uh, last year there was a there was a theater and a uh, kind of cultural art space that was bombed last uh, march yeah i think um, What's the name of
4: that? al-Mishal Cultural Center.
0: That uh, isn't the worst thing that could happen. It's is what you're saying. That's not. That's almost like, as you say, in the co- in the pyramids of, of needs. That's like quite high up. It's a bit of a luxury compared to the other things that are mm-hmm. needed. Uh, is another one movement of kind of freedom of movement because, uh, you know, everyone. It's a bit of a cliche, really, that Palestinians are incredibly highly educated as mm. a, as a people. Uh, everybody values education. Everybody goes to university um but then that's where their opportunities kind of end um is is freedom of movement a kind of key thing as well when you talk about an awareness of uh world literature surely uh, an ability to 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 move and to leave and to experience it is part of part of that kind of diet
3: yeah definitely um i think we can talk a lot about how the internet and social media has made that easier uh, it, it's made it easier for us to access uh, to access things um online etc um uh, and to to connect with people uh abroad i think i think um that's initially how uh the Gaza rights back book was 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 made um but it, but the idea was was not put into action until the publisher actually came to Gaza, and we don't have that now. People are not allowed to 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 enter Gaza and to speak to 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 the people. the the basic kind of human interactions between people uh, are denied. Uh, not not just between a, a writer and their publisher, but also. Between a sister and her brother or uh between a mother and her son um and that that creates a lot of a lot of stories that are worth worth telling and uh, worth writing, but also like you said because we're 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 not connected in that way to the rest of the world it it creates uh some some boundaries uh even though Palestinians are really creative when it comes to overcoming that and uh, seeking seeking a kind of way to to get around it um, so if they're not able to to um, to go go abroad they they can um, use social media for their own advantage and connect with people abroad um, it's but again as a person when you're denied the freedom of movement it, it influences you on a psychological level mm. just for me from personal experience there, there's no there are a few instances where um, there is cultural exchange happening for example um, I don't know the French Institute brings in some kind of Art gallery from somewhere, or um, uh, there's a musical uh, band coming in, just once in every like three moons. <laughs> um, it's there, but it's it's very rare because of the restrictions mm-hmm. of of movement, and that that does make young people and writers and intellectuals in general feel more isolated. as as a people Um, and like I said before because sometimes the basic needs are not fulfilled individuals start to feel isolated inside the community Um, so
0: yeah Yeah, I should I should sort of uh, explain to listeners that um over the years, Kama has attempted to bring eight or nine uh, writers over from, from Gaza. Specifically, we did an anthology called The Book of Gaza in 2014. Of those eight or nine people that we've attempted, uh, most of them have failed. Atef Abu Seif got through because he had a diplomatic passport. Uh, Rawan almost didn't get out this time. Uh, her uh, permit to enter Jordan was initially rejected. Um, and it was only f- through very kind of a, h- a high up kind of pressure to reverse that decision uh, that she was able to come. Um, and uh, last year we s- tried three times to bring uh, Nehru's Karmut from Gaza and it was only on the third attempt that we got a, a British visa and that was thanks to interventions very high up in uh, in th- in Westminster. Um, which is ridiculous to, to simply move people from, from uh, one country to another uh, which, ha- you know, Gaza doesn't have its, have its own airport um, it sometimes takes months and months and months and there are many writers uh, Abdullah Taye, uh, Talal Abu Shawush, uh, Mona Abu Sharakh, um who we've sadly never been able to get out and we've tried several times to get out um, and it's, it's just a, a reality that a lot of people d- aren't aware of um, I'm very also aware of the way that this conversation is kind of the, the table in front of me is divided. On one half we have two very passionate, enthusiastic academics who who are talking about this huge uh, appetite for new writing from, from uh, the Arab world and uh, specifically science fiction from the Arab world. And on the other side of the table, with, uh, you're talking about how much creativity there is but how limited it is. Uh, in terms of its ability to interact with the rest of the world, um, and it's almost like the 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 higher the wall is between these two, the audience and the critical reception and the writers, the greater the appetite is. Do you do either of you see um, this this impasse sort of getting any better, or uh, um, because the, there is this there is this appetite, and it, it, as a study, our science fiction was just at, um, two or three academics a few years ago, and. Uh, primarily yourself, Barbara. I think you were you were uh, one of the first, and now it's it's kind of growing uh, very very fast. Um, uh, but as I say, the the access to it and the the uh, the kind of contact with with writers is 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 not there, and perhaps there's not a perception that there is such an appetite uh, amongst Palestinian writers.
2: I mean, in terms of Palestinian and wider Arab creativity in all forms, there are significant changes in the last 10 or so years, I would say, thanks to things like the Katam Foundation, Adolf Swaif's um, Comma Press's initiatives, I mean, you know, more than any publisher, I think, you've done a lot to sort of bridge these different contexts of production and reception. Uh, social media, I think, plays a part, the big prizes, you know, there's so much better exposure, I think, of Arab writers in the world today than there was 10 years ago, even. But can I go sideways before we come back and sort of ask as, a poten- as potential bridges about form and about language? Um, because Salma Dabar, when she um, was at the pre-launch in Liverpool um, a couple of weeks ago said, you know, this is not just about genre, but this is also about writing the short story. And she said it was a particularly interesting challenge to write speculative fiction in the short story form, because you've got to kind of invent this, um, this catalyst for, you know, relationship between the present and the future. You've got to imagine a whole fully formed, viable, kind of credible world, and you've got to do it all in a short story. So I was quite interested in that because Como Press has often championed the short story. So we might want to hear a little bit more about that. And I just thought, Rowan, your title even does so much interesting work. It's like the perfect choice of title, I think, because it kind of throws up this kind of juxtaposition, the jarring juxtaposition of the kind of the real is gr- grotesquely unreal. And just on this first page, we have this sort of juxtaposition of ordinariness and disorientation in all sorts of ways. You know, he doesn't know if he's between, if he's in reality or a nightmare, the ground is unstable due to the explosions. This is a neighborhood continue on the edge, kind mm. of great geographically and also psychologically. Um, So it it just struck me as a kind of useful form, the short story, for transmitting an awful lot of information creatively in a short space. And obviously I think we need to talk about the fact that, you know, you've chosen to write in English. It's Mm -hmm. a choice. What advantages and disadvantages in terms of kind of getting out of Gaza and perhaps also potentially speaking to other Gazans as well?
0: That was going to be my question about (laughs) writing in English as well. I was going to come back to that uh, because it is It's interesting.
3: Okay. Um, I'm not the only one who wrote it. No, 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 okay. no, not at all. <laughs> Thank
0: God. I mean, the, the collection <laughs> is
2: very, very diverse in terms yeah. of where people come from, how old they are, and yeah. which language they write in. I mean, that's a brilliant collection in that respect. Mm.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it is an, an interesting one as well. There's also the question of writing about Palestine from a, uh, from a diaspora point of view, mm. first generation, mm. uh, somebody who grew up there, like uh, Basma's sort of experience, rawan 's experience um, uh, who's kind of been there but has English and has been el- lived in other countries, and also somebody like Selma who has never lived in uh, in uh, Palestine and she is a s- second generation mm. uh, so yeah there's so many different versions and perspectives on Palestine uh, in there as well
3: mm. I think about uh, short the short story for, form um, for me, I found it. I always found it a really useful form to transmit the the feeling of shock and trauma that um that I've experienced uh in gaza there they've always been like events like uh the two thousand and eight two thousand and nine attacks uh um Two thousand and twelve or even things that happened between between these, and even two thousand and fourteen, even though i wasn't in gaza have has also been very traumatic traumatic for me. Um, they're all very short uh, experiences in reality, uh, but they have this long lasting effect on the psychology on how I feel and how I relate to other people and to to the world. So I feel like uh the short story form, and this is the longest story I've ever <laughs> written actually, um, because the Pesma and, and Ra have encouraged me to write a longer story. But I, I feel like the short form is very, very helpful in um portraying the the, the shocking um reality of these experiences um sometimes uh shorter sentences and uh, shorter bits of, of words um, does do that as well for me, so yeah that's uh, in regards to the short story form um about english i i think
0: do you write in arabic
3: no i don't i Did read you- uh, I read in Arabic a lot um I don't I don't write in Arabic uh, because... Why don't I write
0: in Arabic? <laughs> we can come back to that one. Yeah. <laughs> you
2: can't say fuck in
3: Arabic. You can't say fuck in Arabic. <laughs> um, uh, that's actually a very good point because I can't swear at all in Arabic because I was raised in a family where swearing was forbidden. Um, and my siblings and I sometimes spoke in English inside the house, so we could actually swear. swear. (laughs) And sometimes, uh, for example, the the dialogue between Adam and Rahaf, where they exchange Sherlock Holmes' uh, vocabulary, it would happen between me and my brother, but with swear words. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I feel like I have more freedom when it, when it comes to English. Not that I, I wouldn't in Arabic had I been more courageous. Uh, um, but I think I find more relief in writing something that I know my parents would not judge <laughs> incredibly harshly. Uh, I also think that it gives me a wider um, a spectrum in terms of audiences. Everyone in in, in, in Gaza reads reads in English. Um, when I started writing, I also started blogging um, and writing and publishing online. Uh, I didn't want my audience to to just be uh, an Arabic speaking audience. I wanted my audience to be everywhere, all over the world. Um, um, and it's a shame that that we have to use English to do that. That it's it's not you can't write in English and then reach as many people as you can. You can't write in Arabic and reach as many people as you can with English. Um, I think that's what's nice about Palestine Plus 100, actually, that uh, a lot of these stories are written in Arabic and translated to be accessed by by more people. Um, although as a, an Arabic speak speaker and uh, avid reader, I'd like to also read them in Arabic. <laughs>
0: They will hopefully be available in Arabic as well. Yeah. Which leads me on to my next question, Basma. Um, did you feel that there was a difference in tone or approach or outlook or worldview when it comes to looking at the different stories that came in—those in English, those in Arabic, those from, um, you know, a Palestinian who's based in Iceland, as uh, opposed to a Palestinian who's based in the West Bank? Um, the, dif-
4: the stories were. Even though there were some uh, recurring themes amongst the stories, they were all approached from different angles. Each each story was was very different. Each one was very different. I, I fell in love with each story for a different reason. One, if if you look at the different sections of Palestinian people, you've got the diaspora, you've got people in you know West Bank and Gaza, and then you've got uh, 1948 Palestinians in 1948. Uh, each of them have a, have a unique perspective of the cause and Nakba and how to uh, write about it. And this is all reflected in their stories, uh, and, and and so you had the originals coming in in Arabic. That was that that was very worrying. One one of the worries for me was that they, because I loved them in Arabic and I was feeling very passionately about. It, then I was worried about the next stage, which is the translation. Will the stories keep their you know nuances, their sense of humor, the dialogue, the colloquial? Extremely colloquial in some in some cases, will it preserve all that. And this is where the translators came in, and they did a great job of relaying all of that.
0: But did you feel that um, did you feel that, like for instance, Abdul Muhti's, um story or uh, uh, Majid Khaled's story was um, kind of in some way I don't know uh, more Palestinian or more Arabic than um, uh, maybe. Selma Deba's story, being controversial Absolutely
4: not. Uh, being Palestinian by definition, uh, you've got different levels of, not different levels, you're, you've got different perspectives of being Palestinian. For example, Selma had never been to Palestine. And as she said, she's got kind of imposter syndrome. She felt like everyone else was more Palestinian than her, whereas she embodies what being Palestinian is in a sense. They all do, but in different ways, even though they have different circumstances. No, each story was more Palestinian than the next for different reasons, even though they're all different, different circumstances, all Palestinian, which is the definition of of being Palestinian. What did Edward Said say?
2: Um, you know, no Palestinian can define how any other Palestinian might mm. feel. It's, every experience is unique and yet joined as Palestinian through Absolutely. this shared history, of it, which is a Nakba mm-hmm. history, and the ongoing yeah. nature of the Nakbar. Yeah. It's not something that happened in 1948, yeah. mm. which is what makes this collection so successful, I think. It's really tight. You know, it has this kind of diversity, but it's, the stories are not set too far in the future, and they're all building off the same platform, I think.
0: Thank you. There's a great line at the beginning of uh, your thesis, Barbara, which is which is this line um, from um, uh, Thomas Hobbes. Uh, no man can have in his mind a conception of the future, for the future is not yet. But of our conceptions of the past, we make a future, or rather we call past future relatively. Um, there is this sense that, you know, we're not actually talking about the future mm-hmm. uh, when we're writing uh, mm-hmm. science fiction or we're writing uh, stories set in, in 2048 because it's unknowable. Mm-hmm. And what we have is kind of the past to reconstruct or aspects of the past to pull out and mm-hmm. allegorize or uh, rebuild or re-examine. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a, uh, a kind of a feature in, in our uh, science fiction generally? Um, is that a, a, a common device uh, in in the kind of texts you've been reading?
1: Um, yeah, I think a lot of critics in science fiction make the same assertion. I know Ursula Le Guin does, who's obviously a great writer of science fiction as well as a critic. And um, Ahmed Khaled Tawthiq, um also told me the reason he set Utopia in the near, very near future, which is probably just about come to pass very shortly. Um, was that he obviously wanted it to be an allegory of the present, for example, the the great widening divide between the very wealthy and the very poor that he could see in Egypt and the dangers of hollowing out the middle class. Um, he did not want that to be a subtle allegory. He wanted people to be warned about what the danger is. And generally, I think, um, yeah, people do always write about, inevitably write about the present when they're writing about the future. And this is something that um, in one reading of the Palestine 100 collection does come across very clearly. A lot of it does feel incredibly contemporary. There isn't a lot of what you call a drag, sort of space drag decorations, you know, aliens, robots, um, the sort of usual paraphernalia of, of space um, because that's not what the brief was, I guess, um, but also because people didn't feel the need to use it and because people wanted to clearly tether their real stories really closely to reality, and not have it drift off too far away um, from the stories that you want that you obviously wanted to tell. Um, with regard to the authors that I studied, in *Lord of the Spinach Field*, which was probably my favourite text um, by uh, Sabri Musa, and the most sophisticated of the texts I read. I mean, many of which I have to say were aimed at the slightly younger adult reader. Lord of the Spinach Field is um, a dystopian tale of a man who's just simply called Homo in Arabic as in Homo sapiens. And he's living in a futuristic dystopia where most of the world has been destroyed by a war and people are living under geodesic domes in a very controlled totalitarian state. And they go and work in the spinach field every day and the bales of spinach are harvested and taken elsewhere. Food comes out of the walls in pipes and... Um, Free love is encouraged. This is the word that he uses a uh, um That you can go to a state owned brothel, it's completely fine. You can sleep with your friends' wives, it's completely fine. Um, they're given a certain amount of social freedoms and they can also take sort of beer in government pubs, but they're also incredibly controlled in what they do and um, very few people are allowed to break out. Um, I hadn't read Zamiatin's We, a, a Russian SF novel, whenever I read this and afterwards I did and I realised that. I would be very surprised if Sabri Musa had not read *We*, because it's, it seems very derivative. It doesn't take away from the fact that Lord of the Spinach Field is a brilliant novel. And at the end, of course, Homo um, undergoes various personal journeys and decides to break out. And this the story um, is a tale of what happens to the man who decides to break out of the horrible, um, incredibly in- controlled dystopia and go back to the real world. Um, so some of that is obviously a comment on the environment and on, on war. A lot of the texts that I read that are set in the future are um, set in a, uh, an earth devastated by war. And again, that's related to obviously common concerns. Um, but in the children's books perhaps are slightly more positive as they might be expected to be. You don't tend to write terribly bleak dystopias for children. Um, so they have present a more hopeful view of the future. Um and of the Arab world having a scientifically preeminent and prosperous future. Um, Going back just really briefly to the points that you made earlier about Arabic and English, um, this reminds me of something I heard, I think it's Naif al Mutawa, the author of the 99 comic book series, uh, say at a Dubai um, comic con in 2011, and he started writing um, about Arabic superheroes because he had five sons who he felt had no Arabic superhero models. Everything was terribly Western, so named after the 19 attributes of God, he created all these superheroes for that purpose. And also um, Noura Noman, the Emirati writer of um, Ajwan, who's herself a, a marvelous translator, I think originally said, though, I think she had to changed her mind about it that she never wanted that book to be translated into English because she really wanted Arabic teenagers like her children to have access to Arabic science fiction written in Arabic. And she felt that there was a place for that, although obviously as a translator, she understands the importance of of translation. But also I feel that there is a place for champions of what is in niche literature. I don't know if Bloomsbury Qatar Foundation is still publishing. or. um,
0: I think it disbanded. That's what I heard.
1: I wasn't sure. Because I know that they published, obviously, um, Utopia. And the other thing I heard was that Utopia was going to be made into a film in Egypt. And I'm not sure... It is. Ah, oh, that's good, because I, I hadn't heard about that for a while. In order to break through um, and make it more, make, raise public awareness, you need maybe one or two texts that not only succeed like Utopia has done in a literary sense, but you also need maybe the more popular um, iterations such as film. And if you do get something like Utopia, maybe made in Egypt, but released with subtitles on, I don't know, Netflix or Amazon or something, then you do get it, it, it get, comes out of the international sort of box. And people start to think, my goodness, it's not just all about, you know, Marvel and, you know, all this type of of, um, very enjoyable Western science fiction, that this can be produced by um, uh, people you wouldn't think of as normally producing simply because there isn't a lot of it um, under the Western eye anyway. I I don't know. So I think, yeah, you do need translators. You do need perhaps a a champion for a niche literature. in order to um, encourage, sort of raise awareness of it. But also there is, you're not the only person I've said, I've met who've said that young people in the Arab world are increasingly um, communicating in English. Um, This is something I'm not an expert on, but I think that there is a place for Arabic literature in Arabic. Um, Not that Arabic is in danger of becoming a fossil, a literary fossil, um, but just to have that in your first language, the language that you speak at home, even if... It's more common for people these days, maybe in certain circles or classes, to speak maybe, you know, two or three languages fluently to have that in your mother tongue, I think is quite special. So yeah, I think you do need to be a champion to, to make that happen. We could maybe make a little plug for reissuing utopia as well. I mean, I was
2: chatting with Marshall Corley on, on Twitter about this and she's the expert of all things Arab literature and she said, Absolutely not, it's out of print. Um oh. we would like to get it out there again. Yeah. We're about okay. to
4: release a Netflix series. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, yeah. well,
2: that's good news. Well, that might yeah. be the, the way there.
0: So my last question to all of you, because it's been really interesting and kind of slightly uh, going off in many different directions, but my last question to or you three at least is if you uh, could click your fingers and commission one project...
2: If I could commission one thing, it wouldn't be about science fiction necessarily. I would pick up on a a point made by Nora Parr recently in a book which is coming out called Post-Millennial Palestine, which is about um, contemporary Palestinian literature. I would pick up on Nora's point that contemporary writers, many contemporary writers, are kind of evoking a breakdown in the established tropes, the symbolic order, um, respect for authority and kind of searching for new genres,
1: new languages, new tropes for the Palestinian experience. I would commission that book. I think I'd probably keep it quite simple, and I would issue um, as chunky an anthology as the mythical funding would afford. And I would put in a selection of um, short stories and a little sample of children's fiction, like Farouk's Mila um, on the Stockpile of Future Files. Um, a, I suppose what maybe one story or novel. Or novella because they tend to be quite short from each epoch and um, maybe from Tawfiq al-hakim right and then the 60s to mustafa mahmoud to talib umran and um nabil Farouk in the 80s and then sort of comic novels like the blue flood by bakali and then lord of the spinach field which i do feel has a, a lot of, of of literary merit i would publish a sort of chunky anthology like that just to give people a better, wider idea of the history of it as it's evolved, maybe a very short sort of compressed introduction to how it's evolved, because you do get some people trying to wind back the origins of Arabic science fiction to, say, Lucian of Samasata. I think there's always that sort of longing for people to tie things back and give them, like, an extra gravitas for antiquity and for precedence. But actually, science fiction is quite a modern genre. Um, so I would, I think I would probably just... Um, go for a big collection of representative literature and try and cross quite a wide time period up to the present day.
0: Fantastic. Right on. Um, It could be like what commission would you like to get from us in the future? What would you really kind of jump at?
3: I think there should be a platform for uh, young young uh, writers at the moment. Um... I think, like like Lindsay said, their uh, Palestinian identity has has evolved in a very very complicated way um, in Palestine. I think there there should be more um, to bridge the Palestinian identities between Gaza and the West Bank, because that's uh, that's one of the um, successes of of. Um, the occupation or uh, colonialism. It's fragmenting identities and making people feel isolated as communities or individuals. Um, I think this is what Palestine Plus 100 does very nicely, but also I'd like to see something uh, done more on a kind of um, micro- um level and see young authors communicating uh as well while while creating that project and i th- i think science fiction is a is a really nice uh way to uh, a really nice context to do that in um because like i said it's it would be people just basically describing their daily lives <laughs> um
0: and adding a few drones. Or,
3: yeah. yeah. Cool. <coughs>
2: Although, what we see in Mazen Maru's final story in the collection is that you can't steal everyone's imagination, even if we're talking about the lost Palestinian. Mm. I mean, that was a good note to end on, and his story was wild. <laughs> it kind of drew together everything and more. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Actually, in fairness, this would have been my dream commission. So, congratulations to
3: yeah. all
0: three oh, Lindsay, of you. It's I'll wonderful. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Cool. Uh, well, it just remains me, for me to thank uh, today's speakers and to uh, ask you to look forward to our, our next episode, which is over for now. Uh, thank you to uh, Barbara Dick, Lindsay Moore, Awanyagi and Basma Kaliyu. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Storgy seeks to publish and promote exceptional literary short fiction. We take pride in discovering new and emerging talent, so if you have a story, visit us at Storgy.com. Discover the macabre secrets of the eerie town of Shallow Creek, blast into dystopian worlds with Exit Earth, or find the blackened husk of the American dream with Roger McKnight's Hopeful Monsters. Competitions with cash prizes and merchandise that any book lover will cherish, check out Storgy.com today.